Welcome to Terminal Talk. This is a podcast about mainframes and mainframe-related topics. I am Jeff, and I am here with an old pal of mine. Not to say that you're old. I'm here with Eli Dow. Uh, thanks for having me on the show, Jeff. I appreciate it. This should be a lot of fun. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. We are uh, we're former office mates, I believe. That is true. We have been neighbors. We have been office mates. We have been co-workers. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, it goes back a long way. So it's and good. now we're standing outside yelling at each other over a parking lot. Yes, as loud as we can <laughs> without you know making neighbors <laughs> angry. We're making it happen, though. That's all that matters. And we're going to talk today about fully homomorphic encryption. Yeah, it's a bit of a mouthful, that's for sure. It, it really is. And whenever I see uh, a, a name for something within IBM or, or in a tech field, which seems like it's strategically picked, I know there's some structural reason behind it. So why is it fully homomorphic encryption, not like super duper homomorphic encryption? Fair or... point, fair point. Let me let me try to un unpack that for a second. All right. So if anybody in the audience here, who, you know, given your audience, they're probably aware of some- Extremely things. smart people. Extremely smart folks. Yep. And so they probably know about RSA, for instance. RSA yep. is a type of encryption that is what we'd call partially uh, homomorphic. And partially homomorphic here means that you can do certain operations on encrypted uh, values with the encryption scheme, uh, but what happens is you can only do so much. You could do a certain number of operators, and then it is no longer um, closed to where you could decrypt things. So, for instance, uh, RSA is, is closed under multiplication. You can take an encrypted value with RSA, multiply it times another encrypted value of RSA, and that result is the encrypted value of both the multiplication of like A and B as the two inputs. And, and the point here is to have something that you can do mathematical operations on without unencrypting it. Exactly. The whole premise of fully homomorphic encryption is that you can do encrypted operations on, um, or you can do operations on encrypted data uh, arbitrarily deep, as many things as you want to do, so universal computation. And at the end, the result is the same thing as if you had done it in the clear text, except the entire time it was encrypted. Wow. So is this a mathematical step forward or a technological step forward or kind of a mix of them? It's a mix of both. So the, the original uh, implementation ideas go back to around the time of RSA. So I think around 78 or something like that originally. But home, fully homomorphic encryption as we know it today was born about 11 years ago uh, by a guy named Craig Gentry. He's a pioneer of the field who finally figured out an interesting problem. Prior to his, his dissertation, People could figure out how to do just multiplication, for instance, and they could figure out how to do schemes that you could do addition, for instance, under fully encrypted values. But uh -huh. the key here, the key breakthrough, is being able to, you know, decipher some kind of scheme, decipher, pun intended, nice. um, where you could do addition and multiplication. And that's important because from computer engineering theory, we know if you can do adds and multiplies, you can construct a really simple formula it's a truth table for uh, a logic gate that you can build all other gates from. So it's oh, is universal. that like how you can use like an, uh, was it, a, is it a NOR or an XNOR? Or... Exactly. The same concept. You can yeah. take, take a NAND gate, for instance, NAND and build gate. the other gates. But that's exactly the idea. You crack that code, figuring out how to do adds and multiplies, you can do anything, uh -huh. provably. So you, th this, this is something that's born out of IBM research, right? Correct. Craig was working at, uh, at IBM when the, uh, you know, his dissertation was, was published or the original work was done. It's been incubated for about 11 years now. Wow. In fact, uh, it's just continuous improvement. And I will say that it, the, the, the original work was good, but it was a little slow. We're talking about, uh, you know, 100,000 times slower than unencrypted operations when we started. <laughs> so in 11 years, we've, we've made some ground. So is, is, is IBM research, is it like I picture it where it looks like the first level of Half-Life and a bunch of people in lab coats and clipboards and... 
Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly what it's like. It's exactly, or or it's a bunch of people toiling away in in their basement after hours, nights, and weekends. <laughs> but you know, actually, the lab in Yorktown is beautiful. We have labs worldwide. We're very fortunate in that it's uh, you know the largest probably industrial research lab that still exists, and we're working hard every day to to do exactly that point: take the mathematics and make it practical for real real solutions. So tell tell us a little bit about research life because this is this is all fascinating to me. Like. Where do the ideas come? Is it just like I have an idea? Let's research this. Like, how do you, how do you make sure that the research stays tied to the market and what's technically feasible? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that that's in part due due to a culture of uh, sort of innovation that IBM's had for a long time, but especially research. Um, you know, we're given a little bit of latitude to investigate things that are maybe a little further afield than would be typical uh, R and D at uh, other software companies you might know about. Uh-huh. But we're not uh, divorced from reality. We have a, a, a wonderful series of checks and balances, including great ties to our products and our services groups to figure out what kind of problems our clients faced with. And more often than not, the genesis of research topics we get into is directly a result of having had a client conversation in, for instance, one of our Think Labs. So that idea I saw sketched on your whiteboard about the super, super bouncy ball? Yes. That's it, probably not going to... Suborbital, but nobody seems to want it yet. Yeah, yeah. It's not rated for re-entry anyway. It's... <laughs> <laughs> no one wants to wear a helmet. We've had enough with masks. No one wants yeah, to wear a helmet, Yeah, it's just suiting too. up in this day and age. So um, I, I know that you're not going to be able to answer this for me, but how does this work? <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's actually not terribly complicated if you distill it down to, you know, to a conceptual level. And I, you I lost think... me. Yep. Well, <laughs> let's pack it up and go home here. So I, I know it has something to do with polynomials, which is right about where I stop paying attention in any sort of academic situation. So is as, that as well? You should. Yes. Okay. Uh, so yeah, let me break it down. So the idea is conceptually fairly simple. Let's say you have a message you want to hide. One way you could do that is to take your brief message and say it's a string like hello world. And you could cut each letter up into an individual letter. Uh-huh. And then you could spread those letters very, very far apart and put a bunch of random letters in between them. It's sort of an obscurity kind of thing, but that's not what's going on here. Instead, let's take that conceptual approach and say you have a message. And what we're going to do is hide the the bits that represent your message in a very, very large polynomial. And we'll come back to what I mean by very large because it's mind-boggling or mind-bottling if you're from my hometown. (laughs) Um, So you're basically spreading this message across the coefficients and the uh, the, the terms of the polynomial And then what happens is by using some clever math, uh, including something called uh, modular arithmetic, you can then quickly get the important bits back out. Okay. If that makes sense. So, yeah, it's basically hide your message in a big thing that only you know how to, you know, quickly just throw away the junk that was the padding. So is the encryption part of the fully homomorphic encryption encoding and decoding? Ah, so that's that's very important. So the the encoding and decoding phase are definitely imperative to how the system works. So okay. when you take that message, for instance, hello world, and you want to put it in fully homomorphic encryption, the very first thing you need to do is actually encode it. And encoding that is the process of figuring out how much space you need to kind of hide the stuff in. And, then and this you, is where we're adding all the space in between all the bits. Space in between the bits and then packing that with stuff that you can remove. So that's that's uh, all part of the setup phase or the encoding decoding phase, which are reciprocal operations. Uh-huh. Okay. So how much space are we talking about here? A whole bunch. A whole bunch <laughs> is the actual, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's a bunch. All right. To break it down, when we talk about big polynomials, I mean, you guys probably remember doing this stuff in, in middle school, thinking about how do you expand, you know, a, an X third level polynomial, degree three. Yeah. Uh, X to the third plus X squared plus X. Yeah. 
But we're talking about real big. So here, maybe the polynomial degree, the number of terms, is somewhere on the order of, say, 10,000, maybe bigger. Wow. And then if you want to have your mind blown wide open, the coefficients... <laughs> you know I do. Yeah. Uh, the coefficients are represented by numbers. Like today, we would use a 64-bit number, and you can have a pretty large value that fits in a 64-bit number. We need 600 bits to represent the coefficients of each of these terms of this massive 10,000 long you know, polynomial. So it's real big. It's a bunch of big. How... Um... How is basically you should just stop there. How? Okay, yeah. How? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so again, what we're doing, all, all the fundamental operations that we're doing, when the rubber hits the road here, you're, you're making these massive polynomials, hiding the data, and you know how to get the stuff out. And all you can really do with these is add them and multiply them. Right. Literally, that's the basic operators you can do. And from that, we can do everything else. So, how do you add and multiply a number that is so big it doesn't actually fit like in a register? Uh -huh. Well. There's lots of clever stuff that's happened by way of you know, computer engineering and software where you can sort of decompose these things up into uh, partial pieces using something called the Chinese remainder theorem. And without getting into the math of it, you can basically break the big number into a bunch of little tiny numbers and operate discreetly on small things, including some interesting work that uses fast Fourier transforms at the lowest level to actually do the multiplies. Uh -huh. So uh, basically using the most sophisticated math we know of to do middle school algebra but at a massive scale if that makes sense and does having um a tight coupling with like the hardware and the operating system does that make any of that stuff easier oh sure would sure would um <laughs> so where we're at right now the, the library that we base uh, our work on the homomorphic encryption is in something called he lib it's been open source for for a long long time i think more than a decade and so basically um it's it's a c plus library and it does rely on two underlying math libraries called NTL and GMP that are well-known, well-studied, fairly well-optimized uh, implementations of math. So that history, we, we're standing on the shoulders of giants who took the time to optimize things, including for power and for, for, uh, for S390 and for Intel kind of instruction sets. The more coupling you can do, the more hardware you know tying you can do, you get more performance. And that is certainly something we've been looking at. And I can't go into crazy amounts <laughs> of detail, but as the audience might appreciate, we are definitely looking how to exploit a lot of the really cool technology that System Z has. Well, and I know that on, on the System Z, we kind of have the benefit of all of the resources in one place, and we can you know, dynamically move around massive amounts of memory. That probably certainly doesn't hurt. You are, you are not wrong. <laughs> it, uh, so one of the things that, that people often ask when we st first start talking about fully homomorphic encryption is, you know, well, why don't I already have this? This sounds like the dream. It's, yeah. the, it's the, the delicious cupcake in the window of everybody sees value or application to their particular use case. Well, there is, there is a cost. There's no free lunch for everything. I mentioned the encoding and these large polynomials. As you might appreciate, that means all of your computations get a fair bit slower. Now, we're not 100,000 times slower like it was 11 years ago, but recent examples of machine learning type work, you know, you're talking about maybe a 50, 50 times slowdown compared to unencrypted operations. And the memory usage could be, say, 20 times higher. Uh, it could be worse depending on the naivety of your, your implementation. So having that hardware capability of massive memory and fast, um, fast capability to move memory and an extremely large processor cache are all things that are absolutely a perfect fit for doing homomorphic encryption. Let's let's talk about use cases because we were talking about like this this hello world getting moved around, and I guess that's probably not you know a valid use case. 
Yeah, it's pretty weak. Let's pretty be weak. Um, I probably should have thought it through before. Right. Yeah. Started. Oh, yeah. Back to the drawing board. At the same time, it sounds like because of the size stuff, we're not just going to say, "Hey, take all of your data and and FHE it." Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. In fact, um, one of the again another advantage of, of the mainframe is expandable storage, and and you do in fact. If you are to encrypt a data set fully homomorphically, which is a reasonable thing to do, it would be a way of protecting your data at rest. And you could do that today. It would balloon. I mean, it would get yeah. quite large. I mean, small messages could end up being hello world, could be 10 megabytes, for instance. I mean, I'm maybe exaggerating a little bit, but it's not out of the realm of reality what I'm saying when I when I say that. Uh, it could also be a few kilobytes. And, and we have mind-blowing research going on currently for how to find that sweet spot of how much encryption do you want versus how much space am I willing to trade off. So for right now, what would be like a good sweet spot? Yeah, well, the sweet spot right now is... Is it like my grandma's recipe that I don't want getting out there? No, no, it's sort of, it's use case dependent. And so back to your your question about the actual use cases, it's how much security do you need for that problem? Uh Uh, And it's it's interesting in that we describe security levels kind of in equivalence of like AES. So it's like, do you want 256-bit security? We don't have exactly, it doesn't map, but you can have conceptual analogs. But, But the use cases, let's kind of return to that. We'll talk about one that's near and dear to my heart is encrypted machine learning. And in this case, what you might want to do is take your very large data set and you might want to have machine learning operators um, train a model, for instance. But then that model, you might want to run in the cloud, but you don't want someone to have access to your hard-won machine learning model. So you can actually encrypt the entire model to do the inference part, the part that sort of you're running new items through the model to figure out yay or nay, good or bad, or whatever the model is trained to do. Buy or sell. And a matter of fact, we have that in our toolkit as an example or as a demo. So encrypted machine learning applies to a lot of different domains. Let me give you a specific other type, another categorical type of, of work you could do. It falls under what we'd call the set intersection problem. So let's imagine you're interested in mergers and acquisitions. You've got yeah. Bisti Corp over there with a bunch of great clients. Right. You've got uh, Dow Heavy Industries, who has <laughs> a couple of clients, but they're heavy hitters. Yeah. And what we want to do is basically come together to see should we do a merger. You have a client list. I have a client list. You don't want to divulge your client list, and neither do I. Using this this mathematical problem of set intersection, we could figure out the overlap and who, but each of us has brought to the table a fully encrypted version, so we can find out how many, and we could actually, using both of our keys, figure out, okay, this is our client intersection list, so maybe we find out heavy overlap, there's good synergy. We might find out, hey, there's almost no overlap. This is great for merging because we're not going to cannibalize sales, for instance. A more practical example might be no-fly lists and you're a private airline and you have a passenger manifest. Ah. So I, I prefer the, the Bisti Dow Corp merger. Me too. Example. I can see that happening. Yeah. I was one of the I saw something about like encrypted queries as well. Oh, for sure. Uh, because I know you're very heavy into, into the patent field and one of those things is that if you have come up with an idea for a super bouncy ball and you start Googling on it for super bouncy ball, all of a sudden... Yeah, next thing you know, Google's got, you know, ultra lightweight, rated for re-entry. Right, bouncy ball plus, you know. Probably listening from space right now. Uh, thanks, Elon Musk. <laughs> all right, so, yeah, no, it's true. Encrypted search um, and, and and kind of the notion of privacy-preserving privacy preserving search, rather, is absolutely imperative and near and dear to my heart. Let me Let me give you an example. Every day under normal circumstances, people use GPS to route A to B. They want to go from one location to another. Or perhaps if you're walking in a new city, you want to get a route but pass by a coffee shop, or maybe you're looking for an Indian food restaurant on Yelp. There's a trade-off that we make every day when we do those searches. You got that app for free, but you are the product. You are the data. They're mining everything about you in order to fulfill that request. You make that exchange implicitly. Most of us don't care. Well, 
What if you're searching for something because you've had some symptoms lately and you think you might have some sort of uh, health illness? Mm -hmm. Do you really want Google or the people that you're searching against us to, you know, again, correlating from your browser and all this other stuff, figuring out you as an individual who they know about uh -huh. are looking about potential disease or illness and then selling that data to your uh, healthcare provider or, or some insurance company that might change your rates adaptively. We believe there's a better way. You can do privacy-preserving searches by encrypting the data with uh, fully homomorphic encryption such that your search request, what you're looking for, is never divulged to the party who's actually fulfilling that request. And you can do examples of this, again, from GPS-type searches. You could do it from database-type searches. In fact, a toy version of this is actually shipped with the toolkit. And I say toy here because it's a pedagogical example, something meant to teach. It's uh -huh. not meant to be put into production to run your, you know, to replace your, uh, your IMS data set or something. But it lets your cryptographers, your mathematicians, your software engineers realize, okay, these kind of things are possible and understand it enough to, to really believe that it's real and it's not hokum. This is a real thing you can use today. So the, these toolkits, I can try them out on, on Intel Linux, on S390 Linux and, and more and power and Linux more. and and ZOS yeah so we we support um, three different editions of the toolkit three different variants of the toolkit are out there is open source right now on github mind you and I'm sure we can find a way to get you the links if you're interested absolutely but uh, we have a version for iOS a version for Mac OS both of which use the uh, Xcode um, development environment to host and run the dependency libraries as well as the examples in the typical Xcode fashion where you would import the project from Git, hit the play button, it runs the demos. It's wow. that easy. You can get set up if you're an Xcode developer in minutes. But of course, we're also interested in the enterprise or Linux developers, also near and dear to my heart. And so the Linux variant of the toolkit is shipped as a Docker container. So the dependencies, the base operating system, and your choice of several operating system editions of, of Linux, including Ubuntu, Fedora, and CentOS, with hopefully others to come soon, depending on you know interest from the community and or clients. And you can take these, uh, these toolkits as a Docker container and you can run them on your Mac, on a Linux host, on a Windows subsystem for Linux host. Right. And for this audience, basically any modern Linux running on the mainframe, whether it's on an LPAR or in a ZVM context or even Z container extensions, which is how we've been testing. Oh, awesome. Uh, that was gonna be my next question. In fact, ZCX is a great way to get a, you know experience with the technology. We have put the pre-built Docker containers in case you're a little averse to compiling things from GitHub from random research people. I'm not averse. I'm just lazy. Well, fair <laughs> as well as, as I. So let's say let's be honest. We decided Docker Hub is where we should put pre-built stuff and let people fetch it in a matter of minutes rather than you know reading stuff. And you don't want to have to spend all your days answering questions on how to set stuff up. Yeah, I mean we provided scripts and the full disclosure of how to build everything, and it's there. In fact, we have two guides in GitHub. One's called Getting Started, and one's like the Quick Start guide. <laughs> you would want to take the Quick getting Start. Getting started guide. now. Yeah, getting started right now. Well, we, we've been packaging up a lot of stuff for the this year's Master of the Mainframe contest in Docker images because it's just we spend a lot of time answering questions on how do I get this thing set up my computer looks a little bit different I have this thing and and we're to the point now where it's just like you probably have a machine that supports Docker yeah install this extension and run this thing and it, it really uh, this is this is this yeah uh, the light speed the ludicrous speed jump forward that we've been looking for on oh, a lot exactly. of this. containers are a beautiful way to, to make sure that dependencies and setup issues kind of become irrelevant and we hope that this translates into you know a rapid scale adoption on Z. Uh, we really want to see people try this technology. And by the way, it, it's not just the libraries and some command line thing. We yeah, because also... I was surprised that there's there's a lot of homomorphic encryption libraries out there, 
but this is the, is this the first like what what this is the first what? Well, so yeah, there's a bunch of libraries, and I want to give service to the community of academics who are working hard on uh, coopetition, shall we say? If, like you know, there's other libraries out there, uh, and while ours is the most mature and has been around the longest, we took the leap here of saying let's let's not make this a research project anymore. Let's not make this purely for cryptographers or people with deep Linux experience that can compile this stuff. And it took a while. I'll I'll be frank. When I tried it the first time a few months ago, when I got into the project, the first Hello World took me almost a month to get things compiled and sorted out. No one should have to go through that. Yeah. I, I'd like to think I'm reasonably bright and not, <laughs> you know, not uh, incapable of doing this sort of work. And truth be told, I eventually got there. No one should have to suffer through that. So what we did was take all those dependencies, all those libraries, compile them, turn on what optimizations make sense for the platform, and give you an integrated development environment experience. We actually ship an IDE that you access uh, by way of a browser, um, a web browser session to the container. Oh, wow. So you, when you launch the toolkit and you run it with our, our run scripts that we provide for you uh, right in GitHub, it will start the container and you get a little message saying uh, in typical WebSphere style, like open for business on port, whatever, and you get a URL. If you click that, you're dropped right into a web session to a fully pre-configured IDE with sample code uh, the reference API is right there, and it's got the press the play button to compile and run the demo. It's it's that easy. In fact, most people can get started with Docker experience in less than 15 minutes to run both demos. That's awesome. Yeah. And can I still peek under the hood if I go that way? Oh, yeah. We ship the full source code for everything. Uh, the whole point of this was not to provide a, uh, you know, a sealed ecosystem where you can only kind of see one demo. The full open source code is available both for HELib, which is, has been and will maintain being open for the foreseeable future. It's, I mean, it's an open source uh, license. All of our demo code that we ship as part of the toolkit is MIT licensed, so it's very friendly. You can adapt it for business case. There's no restriction on how you use it, other than you have to say it's MIT licensed or derived. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's 100% ready to go with that. And even the most recent toolkit on Linux that we did includes what we call uh, sort of the basic version of a machine learning library, which was not released in the upstream HELib, it's brand new as part of this toolkit. So if you want to do machine learning and see how you would do that conceptually and literally at the code level, at the flipping bits level, yeah, it's it's all there for inspection. So is this the, the, the overall architecture of this? Is it two peers communicating with each other and you get the ability to in encrypt and decrypt on one side? Or what is the overall topology look right. like? Right. That, that's a great question. In fact, that is the number one thing that is has always been a bit of a hokey thing when it comes to to the academic community. In fact, HELib was great, but all the demos you ship do the encoding, encryption, data processing, decoding, decryption, kind of locally on your machine, which is which is like, okay, um, that's good, but it, it doesn't approach that cloud use case or that even on-prem cloud use case that we would want for a lot of our uh, internal uses we could talk about later if you're interested for within an organization. And so there really is a client-server component implicitly here, at least in the dream. Yeah. You should have a client, quote-unquote, which is doing data encoding and encryption. Once you've encrypted it, you should send it to a server, whether that's an on-prem server or that's in the cloud or something like that, which can then operate fully homomorphically encrypted on your data, never seeing what, it's, what, what your data looks like, never understanding exactly what operations it's performing on your behest, and then ultimately sending back an encoded version, an encrypted encoded version of the results which then you, on the client side, can unencode and decrypt. And it's the same as if none of this encryption magic had ever happened, albeit slightly slower. Right. On this, this really fits into that model. We, we, I talked to uh, Chris Poole uh, like two weeks ago about uh, some hyperprotect stuff. And this, this, um, this movement that, that Z and IBM is kind of taking of 
separate your 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 data from your applications from your hardware, even if they are in the same place running the same kind of thing. Um, is this is this going to play into something like uh, hyperprotect or something along those lines? And is that the look you're giving me to say don't talk about that because that's top secret? I'm neither going to confirm nor deny because I'm in the security <laughs> industry. Uh, I'm not actually in the security. In fact, I should point out for the audience, I'm not a cryptographer. That is not my actual background. Um, I'm an interdisciplinary engineering scientist whose job is to find cool technology and accelerate it out of research. But to your point, your question, yeah, um, you know, we, we see the value of decomposing your data from your application, from the hardware, and you should make use of hardware exploitation where you can, but this logical decoupling is just the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Separation of responsibilities and roles, and it's something that a lot of mainframers have done on the um, the personnel side for a long time. We're starting to get to where we're talking about application modernization, and that's just a, a good practice software hygiene thing you should be doing. As far as uh, HyperProtect goes, we are absolutely interested in bringing this technology uh, to that kind of space, but you'll have to stay tuned. Okay. Can you give me a peek about like what kind of who do you think will be like the first customers to to really jump on board with this? Yeah, I want to give a little bit of a hat tip to uh, one particular industry who seems to really get this concept, and that's the financial uh, services industry. Uh, we did some work that really kind of jump started this this resurgence of of popularity or this this motivation for doing the toolkit as a result of uh, a collaboration between a South American bank that was done last fall uh, with IBM. And in fact, it was groundbreaking. And that it was the first time a, a commercial entity, in this case a bank, actually allowed another organization to use real client data for the experimental purposes. Huh. And I'll give you a little flavor of kind of what we did with them. Uh, this bank uh, in South America had a bunch of data about their clients. And what they were trying to do was determine from banking records which of their clients would be interested in taking out a loan or would be likely to need a loan in the next couple of months, I think was the, the forecast window, or a couple weeks even. I don't remember. And so this is an interesting problem because it's a machine learning problem from vast amounts of data and historical records. You can kind of find patterns in the data that would would tell you who might future clients that map into this model of uh, might need a loan. But it's an exceedingly rare circumstance. We're talking about like less than 1% of all banking clients at any moment would actually be the type of uh, client that might need me to uh, need a loan. And so it's a machine learning problem that, that's difficult to, to find the needle in the haystack. Mm -hmm. And of course, they want to be able to do this, but they were interested in being able to outsource the compute for it. So that's what we did. We actually set up an example with them. We got parity effectively with the machine learning model in terms of the encrypted model performs just as well as the unencrypted model. Wow. I mean, you can actually read the research paper. It was published last fall. I'm sure we can provide links to anybody who's interested. And it was the first time, you know, anyone did a serious public or I'm sorry, a serious uh, private data set with somebody like IBM to actually do do the dream, fully encrypted work that was outsourced uh, by us. It, it seems like over the past couple of years, you know, we've talked about um, like the algorithm economy. There's there's a number of companies that, you know, uh, if you look at like Kaggle data sets and stuff like that, people are always jockeying for position of like, we're the, we're the best at this and we're, you know, we have the best, most efficient algorithm for this. We can predict what your customer is going to want next. And I've seen this before where customers get entirely on board. Yeah, we want to do this. We want to use your algorithms. We want to use your machines. Great. Just give us all your data. And you're, whoa, whoa. No, exactly. no, no. Does this make some of that uh, ecosystem a little more tenable? Yeah. I mean, that's 100% the, the kind of a subtext that's in the industry right now is that people want the value of machine learning. They don't want to give you all of their data uh, for you as the external agency to do the machine learning optimization, et cetera. And counterpoint. 
I've seen situations where companies were all too happy <laughs> too to happy, give out yeah. customer data. <laughs> well, uh, I'm not without naming names. Some of those companies are probably the same that you should worry about having your your personal data because of breaches and the implicit web of trust that comes from exactly this. what I'm talking. Yeah, <laughs> and, and let's be honest. At this point, if we fully encrypt the data with homomorphic encryption, while there is a cost to be paid, and I want to be very clear about that, memory, CPU, and trust trust me, we're working on this, and we've got some great <laughs> ideas, and we've got some great experiments going right now that are they're promising. We don't believe that the model should be send your unencrypted data to somebody else for processing. At least that's not a long-term tenable future that we can get behind. Good, because the, the state of the art that we're at right now, which is that, makes me a little bit uncomfortable sometimes. Oh, I mean, some people ask me, how did I even get interested in this to begin with? And of course, the original interest was from a research paper. But my more pressing recent interest is the staggering number of times in the last three years that uh, my credit union, which will go unnamed for the purposes of this, this, uh, <laughs> this discussion... <laughs> Has for some reason, you know, they do some processing on my debit card, but some third party is doing the processing of some part of that. And because they get breached, I have the inconvenience of having to change all my debit card numbers and call all of my auto debit organizations. And all of this boils down to the same problem. We're letting people take unencrypted data to do needed computation. These things right. need to happen. Reconciliation, uh, bank transactions, this stuff must be done. Somebody has to do the work. They don't need to do it in the plain text. They could do it in such a way that even if a hacker had raw access to the machine that's doing these computations at the, at the assembler, at the instruction, at the memory level, it wouldn't matter because they'd have no idea what's going on. Right. And we think we have a solution for that. And by the way, if you want to bootstrap that on top of trusted hardware because you don't 100% trust the math, that's fine. You could do that too. We're not saying you shouldn't. But that is one of the interesting parts about this technology is that it does not rely on the hardware trust that like trusted execution environments would do. By all means, if you have that hardware and capability, you should layer these things together. That's yeah. my viewpoint. That is not an IBM statement. I'm just saying protect my bank account, please. <laughs> We're all saying that. Um, these libraries are open source. Yeah. Why, why are we doing that? This seems like such a good thing. Why do we want everyone to, to have our stuff? You know what? We're doing that exactly because it's such a good thing. And people ask, well, why did you do it for so many distributions? Believe it or not, I've been asked multiple times, why didn't we only do this for Red Hat or something? Right. The answer is we love Red Hat. I mean, I love open source. I've got pictures of me with a Red Hat Red Hat <laughs> hat on in college from, from a decade ago, or I guess two decades ago now. But the reality is security is for everybody. Um, we should put this out there. And the crypto community has a long history of open sourcing their, their algorithms and implementations because, let's be honest, the mathematics can be sound. The rubber hits the road when you actually do the implementation. If you have a bug in the actual software implementation, it might make the whole stack just fall apart because somebody found a weird backdoor that you didn't think of that's an implementation detail, not a mathematics detail. So, again, standing on the shoulders of giants... The core maths are out there in the papers. Uh, the core implementation, HELib, has been out there for a long, long time. And there are, again, co-opetition libraries that, that are not what we're talking about today. But it fosters healthy, um, healthy innovation. Uh, we think we're in a leadership position on this. And we're confident that by putting our stuff out there, we're just going to get further interest in it or accelerate the research and or development community to uptake the technology. Fantastic. Uh, one other thing uh, I wanted to drive into... Um, we talked to, to Ross Moore at the end of the year, and he said, you know, we asked him, where do you think the ball is going? He says, you know, the, the next thing we really need to meet is making sure everything is quantum cryptography safe. Um, what does that mean, and is this that? Ooh, that is that is 100% in my wheelhouse. Thank you, sir. <laughs> uh, the check is in the mail, Jeff. Um, so right actually, here. you could just hand it to me. It, well, I, just, well, we can't. We're 10 feet apart. I could throw it at you. Rats. Damn. 
Uh, so Ross Mori is an incredibly astute guy, and I, I agreed. Know, think he's got a good vision for for security in general and how relevant it is, and the awareness and perception amongst our clients and the world in general that you know a lot of people talk about quantum computers breaking cryptography. Yes, theoretically, it's a threat, and it's something we do need to be thinking about. Um, you know, and and to your your question specifically, well, how does fully homomorphic encryption deal with that? Well, it's sort of sad. We're a bit of an arms dealer in this. We're selling you the bullets, which is the the quantum cryptography, but I'm also selling you the bulletproof vest, which is fully homomorphic encryption. And I like that analogy, not because it has to do with uh, violence and such, but because like a bulletproof vest, it's a protective measure. And in the case of fully homomorphic encryption, it is based on lattice cryptography. It's the fundamental maths behind it. And that technology, things that are that type of cryptography are known to be what we call quantum resistant. It doesn't mean it's quantum proof, but what it means is to the best of known published mathematics and all of the, the science behind it, there is no quantum, quote unquote, advantage in decrypting work. So even if you had the world's most powerful quantum computer with perfect coherence times, it could not break the cryptography any faster than a classical computer would. And it all kind of comes down to this fundamental thing at the bottom called ring learning with errors. Without going into it, even if you saw an, an encrypted message and you knew the kind of the basis that was put into that, you can't really work out from one example, even if I gave you a complete example, uh, minus the, the secret key, yeah. you couldn't, couldn't work out backwards what my secret key was. There's actually randomness and noise that's packed into these stages at, at every, every uh. moment. So effectively, even if you caught one example, because I was being silly, it doesn't break the house of cards. You'd have to have say five examples, but you know what? You still can't learn anything more about it. That's the ring learning with error problem is you, you get, get information on one case, you get information on another case. It's provably hard, mathematically, computer science speaking, that even if you crack the code on a few of these or I was lazy and left some, some information around that you could sniff, it doesn't matter. I can keep feeding you information and it's not relevant to the next time I do it. So getting a corner of the puzzle doesn't, doesn't mean help. you can say, oh, this is horses. Exactly. There's literally nothing to be gained. And, and in fact, if somebody could solve that problem, it's tied to a bunch of really rich computer science problems, and you would not need to worry about them hacking your bank account. They could just go mint money just based on everything. applications of that technology to other things that are more useful. Now, I was listening to a podcast the other day uh, called Darknet Diaries. It's about hackers doing hacker stuff. And there was somebody postulating that, and I guess he's done a couple tests around this, if you listen to the capacitors, the physical capacitors on a motherboard doing their capacitor thing, like it's just saving up and discharging, you can infer what's happening on the system. Like, okay, it must be doing a, you know, a multiplication here. It must be doing an addition and getting a little corner of the information right there. If I get those three pieces of a puzzle together, I can say this is a, a puzzle of some horses. Is that something that, that resists that type of attack as well? Sure. And first of all, I just want to say, you know, I was listening to capacitors before it was cool. I've got, <laughs> I've got all the records on vinyl. Um, no, so, so it's a good question. In fact, this is something that maybe we didn't uh, get into and maybe was not appreciated uh, because it's just kind of a strange topic. But if you're writing fully homomorphic encryption code, for instance, you can't do a branch. Like if this is true, break out of a loop. If if some variable, let's call it foo, is true, break out of a loop. Or if it's false, do something different. You can't do that because if you're the, uh, the, the agency or the computer that's doing the work on behalf of the client who's done the encryption – all you see is encrypted values. You can't tell if a value is true or false or greater than 10 because it's an encrypted value. So what happens is you actually have to think about this, even though you're programming in C++, is, is the library implementation we use. 
you have to think about this more like setting up a circuit, which again is related to the concept of how we think about quantum computing, for instance. It's a fundamentally different way of looking at computation. Uh, Unlike quantum in that it's so different in terms of the basis gates and things, the programming of a fully homomorphic encryption uh, implementation of an algorithm is an awful lot like uh, computer engineers would do to design a circuit. And so really you have to think about designing a program flow, a flow of execution that hits all paths all the time, and that's true of fully homomorphic encryption uh, algorithms that we would implement today, even if you could listen or sort of use profilers on the on the machine running the, the code that's homomorphically protected, you can't tell hotspots in the program because everything is equally hot. The entire program gets run front to back every time, all the time. So there's nothing to be gleaned from that. So you can so listen to the transistors. It takes the left and the right. Yes. Every branch is done every time, every path, and w- which is, again, part of what the slowdown comes from is, is you, you can't cheat. For instance, we ship a demo of the um, privacy-preserving search. It's a country capital key value store. We yep. call it a database for the sake of example. But it has, say, 50-odd countries that, are, that make up Europe. So you can run the demo today, and when you, when you run it, you type in something like England, and you get the response London. So it's a key, key value match of capital and country. To do that, every single search goes through the entire database. It's called a table scan. It has to and necessarily must. And that might sound terrible because what if I had 28 million rows or 5 billion rows like some of our massive client data sets? Well, it does lend itself to massive parallelization where you could shatter the search up to multiple parallel threads, each searching some part of the data set that's encrypted, and you can make use of parallelism. There are a lot of great tricks you can do to still get decent performance out of this approach. It's just the naive approach. If you're not used to understanding you hit all paths and look at all data, uh, as in the case in this example, it's very easy to do something that is less than performant. And so that's part of the industry perception of, well, we tried homomorphic encryption once and it's very, very slow. It, it will be almost necessarily if you're not thinking algorithmically about the problem first yeah. and getting yourself in that mind space of I'm designing circuits. I'm not really writing programs. And I also want to add, this is not bolt-on encryption. You don't Take your existing business logic, this should be clear at this point, and just in, you know include or import the statement into the top that says add-on homomorphic encryption. No, no, it, it's, it's rewriting business logic. But from what we gather from preliminary surveys from clients and, and our you know, trusted advisors and our sponsor users, and I hope to return to sponsor users at the end of this podcast, we've realized that the value that this can bring to your business, you know, it, it's worth rewriting the apps or certainly for building into new apps as people make that cloud journey and put stuff in the public. You know what? While I'm at it, I want to talk about private cloud for a second too. Yeah, a, go lot, for it. a lot of people think go this off, is. King. <laughs> a lot of people think that this is only for you know. I want to host in say the IBM public cloud some part of my my workload that I could you know outsource. But there's a lot of internal use cases as well. Let's again use the financial industry just because I've been working with a lot of those clients recently. Imagine you have uh, an analytics department or somebody who's who's doing your analytics on your core banking processes. Today, a lot of those banks actually have employees that go into uh, air gap type rooms where they're not allowed to have cell phones. They're mm. doing core business analytics on data that they should rightly have access to to perform a job function for the benefit of your internal agency, your bank, your lending institution. You can actually now change that so the data they're operating on could be fully homomorphically encrypted. So you lose the risk of exfiltration of data or secrets by way of a rogue agent inside your organization. And we're not meaning to imply that there's rogue agents everywhere through financial of institutions. Not. Of course not. But, you know, it's, it's one way of looking that even for internal applications, this is very important technology. Wow. Um, you said you want to talk about sponsor users. Oh, thank you for bringing that back up. You know, <laughs> IBM design thinking and the approach of, of really kind of looking at 
the value prop in industry and what clients really want out of technology to solve real business problems is the most important thing right now from IBM Research and from IBM Systems and Software and all of our different groups that we have. And really what we're looking for right now is sponsor users. And a lot of people don't quite understand what that means. And so if I can break it down, there's different different levels. If you want to help us out, you could start by just trying the toolkit and taking the survey, which is linked from each of our GitHub or Docker Hub pages. It's a quick uh, feedback. Thanks, Jeff's trying to hand me a $5 bill to sponsor me. Actually, it's a $1 bill. He went cheap. Just <laughs> a 20 um, A 20 will do. You're in for 20 Am I a sponsor user? No. So it, actually, being a sponsor user at the base level doesn't cost anything. Oh, just, tell me more. You could take the survey, um, again, linked from GitHub, uh, from... Uh, Docker Hub, actually, from just about everywhere that we've posted content about this, there's a survey to give us quick feedback mm. about your experience with the toolkit and kind of your understanding of the landscape, and it'll help us shape how we, you know, make products and services that align with what you need. At higher tiers of sponsorship, we're happy to do design thinking workshops with your organization pro bono, or we'll bring our best designers and um, systems thinkers in to listen to your needs, uh, the kind of problem statements you might have about the technology and um, basically help you think through the problem and understand how you would want to use this in a workflow that makes sense for your org. The last thing we want to do is give you a great technology you can't use. Right. And at the top tier of sponsorship user, if you're really, really motivated and passionate about this, you can also get in touch with us where you could do an IBM research engagement where our research staff will actually help co-design algorithms or solutions to your particular problems at the level of, you know, financial sponsorship in return for cutting edge to technology and some things that are not in the toolkit yet that are kind of next generation. Our tagline for IBM research is <laughs> what's next. And there's a lot of stuff that's coming next. So if you want early access to those kind of things, uh, yeah, we could talk about uh, paid engagements and such. But I don't want people to walk away thinking in order to help shape this technology, you need to send IBM money right now. That's not that's not the case. The, the basic levels of sponsor user, just help us take a survey and maybe do some design thinking with us and see where it goes. That's all we ask. What, what more could you ask for? I don't know. Unicorns? Yeah. An ice cream sundae today would be pretty good. Read my mind. Really? Want to get ice cream? Kind of. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Hey, this has been Terminal Talk. Uh, if you want to follow up on this, just do a search for fully homomorphic encryption IBM. It'll probably land you there. Hey, I, I, I wanted to follow up. There's, there was a, you did a great job with the Ars, Technical, Ars Technica um, article. I know yeah. you didn't write the article, but you were in the comments answering questions. Oh, I was in the comments on Russian forums and Reddit, which, by the way, shout out to any Reddit uh, audience we have. We got a ton of great questions from there. We got Ars Technica folks asking great questions. We are sincerely trying to engage you at the level that you want to talk to us. If it's on Reddit, if it's on Ars Technica, if it's on Russian websites that also commented on the news and even some Chinese websites picked it up, you know, we want to meet you there. Whatever's convenient for you, we think it's cool technology, and uh, we want to hear more about your use cases and what you want. Did you see that uh, one comment that was like, uh, hey, uh, get this guy back to do more articles? Yes. Uh, that was probably the nicest thing anyone said to me in, in two weeks where an ours reader suggested that they pay me in my free time to write articles because they took the time to try to explain something. I hope the audience for your uh, podcast here at Terminal Talk have, have a reasonably similar reaction. I hope they enjoyed the discussion. I hope that uh, you meet us on the battlefield of homomorphic encryption where we can protect data against all those evildoers that are listening to capacitors. I'm up for the challenge. All right, cool. Right after we get some ice cream. Yay! All right, later, Eli. Bye, Jeff. Old Man Charlie, run us out. You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at terminaltalk.net. 
That's contact at TerminalTalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence, signing off.